0: All right, we're standing outside the Colleton County Courthouse here in Walterboro, South Carolina, as we prepare for another hearing in the Murdoch Murders, Crime, and Corruption Saga. In about an hour, Alec Murdoch, the disbarred attorney and accused killer, who, according to prosecutors, murdered his wife and son in cold blood on June 7, 2021. He'll be appearing in this courtroom as his attorneys, Dick Harputlin and Jim Griffin, do battle once again with prosecutors in the office of South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson. It's been a big week in this story, folks. Motions from both defense attorneys and prosecutors laying out new ground in this story as we begin to learn more about what both sides claim happened on that fateful night. A little over a year ago. Fitz News is here covering these proceedings live. Look for us to give you updates throughout the day, but more importantly, look for us on our weekend review section this week to hit this story hard and bring you the very latest on whatever transpires in the courtroom behind us. Alright, so if you follow our news outlet, you know that the Republican Party secured a supermajority in the South Carolina House of Representatives during the most recent elections. Now, question is, what are they gonna do with it? Republicans got a near supermajority in the state Senate and the House last election cycle and proceeded to do absolutely squat with it over the course of the last legislative session. The only thing of note that they did, killed a medical marijuana bill, folks. That's literally the highlight of the the last session of the General Assembly. So as we approach 2023, a session where, again, you've got a supermajority, 78 members of the House of Representatives are Republicans, ostensibly. And in the Senate, you're one member short of a supermajority. So, basically, a supermajority in both chambers of the legislature. Again, what are they going to do with it? Are they going to make significant tax cuts? Are they going to pass a real school choice bill? Are they going to finally fix at long last the state's badly broken judicial system? Put some money to public safety, perhaps? Get serious about infrastructure priorities? Are any of those things going to happen? As we raise those issues and those questions, I want to raise another question. What would happen? If a majority of that Republican caucus, again, that supermajority that controls the legislature, what would happen if a majority of them signed a loyalty oath agreeing not to go against their leaders, agreeing not to post negative statements on social media about their leaders, agreeing not to go to breakfast meetings and coffee shops in their districts and talk down about those leaders? Do you think that serious change is possible in that kind of environment where basically the lemmings, in the house are muzzling themselves i think the answer to that question is pretty clearly no but let's take a break for a minute from looking at the logistics of this and let's talk about what this means for the power struggle within the republican party i've written about it for years folks the gop is badly Badly splintered. We saw it back in 2021 during the precinct reorganization process where uh, a group of loyalists to Donald Trump were battling another group of loyalists who were loyaler to Donald Trump. They were fighting with each other for control of the party. We're going to see it again in 2023 as those precincts get reorganized for uh, the latest uh, election cycles in the aftermath of those. I'm looking forward to 2024. So There's going to be a battle within the grassroots, but that battle is also going to spill over into the caucuses at the statehouse. And you're continuing to see factionalism within the GOP. And the question I've got is, who's going to prevail? And based on who's going to prevail, what sort of policies are we going to see coming out of this, again, supermajority-controlled Republican uh, General Assembly? For years for years for decades as a matter of fact since the republicans first took control back in 2001 it's been almost a quarter of a century folks since republicans took control of of state government in south carolina and i was always told that the republican party was the party of lower taxes of of more individual liberty uh, of less government of more freedom that has not been the way that the republican majority in south carolina has governed at all they have grown government by obscene links, billions and billions of dollars of new spending, year after year after year, precious little in the way of tax relief. In fact, folks, don't take my word for it. For the last three years in a row, the South Carolina General Assembly has been ranked as the most liberal Republican-controlled legislature in the entire country. And you can read all about that. We've covered it for the last three years on Fitz News. Based on what we're hearing with this loyalty oath, it looks like we'll be in store for another fourth year, of, again, fiscally liberal policy, anti-individual liberty policy, like killing medical marijuana, uh, even though a vast majority of the South Carolina public, including Republican primary voters, support uh, decriminalizing medical marijuana. Again, it's a party that's completely out of step with the with the public. It's a party that continues to produce terrible outcomes, whether it's income levels, whether it's weak labor participation rates, whether it's abysmal academic outcomes. The nation's report card, which was recently released, shows South Carolina continuing to lose ground. What are we doing here, folks? What are we doing in this state? Republicans have had control again for a quarter of a century. What have they done with it? Am I saying Democrats are the answer? No. what I am saying is that the GOP majority better figure out how to distinguish its headquarters from its hindquarters, and they better do it soon. But one last thing on this loyalty oath, folks. If your lawmaker comes to you, you need to ask them if they signed that list, because if they did, folks, they're a coward. They're a coward. They are surrendering their ability to represent you effectively by basically saying that they are going to march in lockstep with the GOP leadership. That is not the kind of person you want representing you in Colombia. You want a free thinker, you want someone who can acknowledge that the inefficiencies, the inequities, the injustices of of the current system in Colombia, and stand up for you, not for those Republican leaders who are under the thumb of the special interest. So again, when your lawmaker comes to your local diner, to your coffee shop, or shows up on your porch looking for a vote next election, ask them if they signed that loyalty oath. And if they did, they're not the leader for you. All right, so as I mentioned earlier, we're outside the Colleton County Courthouse here in Walterboro, South Carolina, one of 46 county courthouses in South Carolina. And we're talking about the South Carolina judicial system, folks. We mentioned earlier in the last segment about South Carolina's general Assembly about how some of their priorities are out of whack when you compare what people in the real world are, are dealing with, issues that are facing... Hardworking South Carolinians who continue to scrape the bottom of the barrel nationally when it comes to some of these key indicators, folks. The money they make, the job offerings they have, the education they're receiving from our government-run schools. Again, we are not getting the outcomes that we need. But one of the places, or in fact many of the places, where those outcomes are continuing to struggle are in the courthouses, like the one behind me. And I'm talking about justice, people. I'm talking about the cases in which judges are making decisions not based on facts, not based on merit, not based on the truth, but instead based on influence, on power, on who is pulling the strings of the clients that are appearing before them, who is representing those clients. And in too many cases in South Carolina, what we see are decisions based on powerful lawyer legislators who not only appoint these judges, but determine their salaries, determine their office budgets, and then again determine whether or not they get reelected. And oh, by the way, who elects judges in the state? That's right. Lawmakers. We are one of only two states in the country where lawmakers elect judges. Now, what has been the result of this policy? What has been the result of this system? Well, it's been soaring violent crime in South Carolina. Again, a report released just last month by the State Law Enforcement Division revealed that the murder rate in South Carolina climbed again. It is at a level not seen since the early 1990s when politicians first began cracking down on some of the violent crime with mandatory minimums and other sentencing strengthening uh, legislation. But here in South Carolina, there has to be change. And I've been crying up about this for years. I have blasted these lawyer legislators for consistently reappointing judges who pay no mind to the rights of victims, to public safety, and frankly, to that underlying cause of justice that again, if you come into a courtroom like the one behind me, you need to know that those scales are gonna be fairly weighed. You need to know that justice is blind. But again, in South Carolina, when you have politicians appointing the judges and screening the judges for those appointments, literally deciding who gets to appear before them to be elected as a judge, They're not blind. Their eyes are wide open and they're not looking for the truth. They're looking for where the power is. And again, that is not producing positive outcomes, whether on an individual level for the people that appear before these judges. But more importantly, on that macro level, as it relates to, again, the soaring violence that we're seeing across South Carolina, murder rates through the roof, assaults on Law enforcement, through the roof. Violent crimes, through the roof. There has been a a brief uh, dip in sexual assaults, however, that number's still way up from where it was two decades ago. Outcomes, people. Follow the outcomes. Don't listen to what these politicians say. Watch what they do. And if we are going to fix the problem of violent crime in this state, if we are going to commit ourselves truly to enhancing public safety, not eroding it, to protecting victims, not re-victimizing them, we have got to fix the way that we select judges. Now, what's the answer? I've proposed a number of different solutions, people, whether it's popular election, a lot of folks don't like that idea. Another idea could be gubernatorial appointment, but whatever we do, we have got to take that power out of the hands of the lawyer legislators who pick these judges and then appear before them and profit and benefit from their decisions. That isn't justice, folks. Let's call that what it is, corruption and count on Fitz News to continue standing against that corruption as we report to you what's really happening in South Carolina's courthouses. All right, folks, so one quick note from that segment we just filmed on the state's judicial system. There's one bit I forgot to point out that I want to bring in because it's very important. And again, I've been screaming, breathing fire on this issue for several years, but I'm not the only one. Earlier this week in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, 16th Circuit Solicitor Kevin Brackett gave a speech to a group of voters in which he not only called out the system, he called out by name some of the elected leaders who are perpetuating it. Here's what Solicitor Brackett said, and I quote, Your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you are getting. Your system is perfectly designed not to keep you safe. I repeat not to keep you safe and here's what he said about state uh, Senate Judiciary Chairman Luke Rankin one of the most influential lawmakers in terms of picking judges in the state he said I don't hate him but I wish he wasn't there I really do because he is not helping us the solicitors he is not a friend of public safety. That's some pretty tough talk there, people, for the sitting Senate Judiciary Chairman, a very powerful lawmaker in Columbia indeed, but Solicitor Kevin Brackett uh, from York County calling him out and, more importantly, calling out those outcomes we talked about in the last segment. So again, Count on Fist News to continue advancing this debate as we raise the level of discussion on justice in South Carolina. All right, so as I mentioned, we're outside the Colleton County Courthouse here in Walterboro, South Carolina on this overcast day in early December. We just left the courtroom where Judge Clifton Newman made a few rulings in a largely anticlimactic hearing. It lasted a little over two and a half hours, delved into several of the motions that have been filed recently in the case of Alec Murdoch, the 54-year-old Hampton, South Carolina attorney who stands accused of killing his wife and his younger son last June in Colleton County at their hunting lodge known as Mazell. Now, This case again has drawn national and international attention. We're getting closer to a trial. That trial is scheduled to start in January, January 23 of next year to be precise. And as we move toward that date, both sides, prosecutors in the office of Attorney General Alan Wilson and attorneys for Murdoch are starting to play their chess pieces. They're starting to deploy their chess pieces, starting to make some moves that will position them for that upcoming trial. And we saw it in motions that were filed leading up to this hearing. And in today's hearing, before Judge Newman, we heard those attorneys begin to argue those motions. Now, what did they argue? For the prosecution, it was very simple. Motive. A theory as to why Alec Murdoch allegedly killed his wife and younger son. To them, it was called an unbroken chain. Ten years of financial theft, embezzlement, loans, shady loans related to disgraced banker Russell Lafitte, who was convicted last month in federal court on crimes related to Alec Murdoch. And it continued. Again, a prosecutor at Creighton Waters called it an unbroken chain that led Murdoch to that moment on June 7, 2021, where according to according to Waters, all of his cards had been played. He had no cards left to play, is how Waters put it. And at that point, according to the state, Murdoch killed his son and his wife to prevent himself from being exposed as a, as a financial fraud. Now Is that motive going to be good enough to hold up in court? Well, let's think about that for a second. First and foremost, the state does not have to prove a motive. In fact, it doesn't even have to provide a motive. That is not an element of a murder conviction in South Carolina, and so they could have literally presented nothing on the issue of motive. And again, they don't have to have that to secure a conviction. But clearly the state is invested in the motive, so they spent a lot of time today laying that out as they had done previously in their motion. But today, Creighton Waters put that motion into words in front of Judge Newman, laying it out exactly as to what the state thinks happened here. Now, the defense argued back Jim Griffin very pointedly, saying that he did not believe that the state's theory held held any water. Griffin's argument very simply was that Murdoch had no benefit financially from the deaths of his wife and son, and that the state's theory that Murdoch somehow derived some uh, ability to obfuscate and keep the focus and pressure off of him from his financial misdeeds, that that theory just simply did not make sense. Uh, Again, Jim Griffin argued that point. While Griffin and Waters went back and forth on the issue of motive, a bigger debate unfolded between Murdoch's other attorney, Dick Harputlian, and Waters over forensic evidence. And I'm referring, of course, to the bloody shirt, or depending on which version of the reports provided by Oklahoma-based forensic analyst Tom Bevel, the non-bloody shirt. You'll remember... Harpootling and Griffin in a bombshell motion that was filed the day before Thanksgiving alleged that SLED, the state law enforcement division and the agency leading this investigation and the other investigations into Alec Murdoch, according to that filing, they pressured Bevel into changing his report. Now, we learned something today in court that we did not know prior to this hearing. We learned today that Creighton Waters, the lead prosecutor in this case, was not aware Of the existence of this prior report which again favored the defense which indicated there was no high velocity blood spatter on this shirt that initial report waters did not know about it until the filing that Inn and griffin submitted the day before thanksgiving not only that waters told judge clifton newman today that he did not even see that report until a week later november 30 when he went over to the uh, sled headquarters in columbia south carolina and reviewed a copy of that document. Now, this was a significant admi- admission on the part of the prosecution. It was probably the biggest uh, point that was scored today by the defense because there are real questions now as to whether this shirt will be introduced into evidence given some, again, serious questions being raised by the defense. This is clearly the biggest hole yet poked into the state's theory of how Alec Murdoch allegedly murdered his wife and his son. Now, Now, one thing to consider about this shirt, we do not yet know whether it will be introduced at trial as evidence against Alec Murdoch. The state clearly has not made that decision. And obviously, based on the hearing we heard today, they've got a lot of thinking to do about whether or not they want to try and introduce that evidence and deal with all the questions about how that final report was eventually generated. So we don't know yet whether or not the state will make that decision. We also don't know what impact might be had on the case if they decide not to introduce it, does that leave them without a key piece of their case against Alec Murdoch? It would seem that they're in a difficult position one way or the other. However, and I want to stress this, I've spoken to several sources close to the prosecution regarding this situation. They've told me two things. Number one, the shirt issue, according to them, does not change the state's strategy for this trial. Number two, they claim that it does not present an issue that will in any way, shape, or form damage the integrity of their case against Alec Murdoch. Those are two very bold claims, folks, based on what we've seen today in court, based on what we saw on the motions related to this evidence leading up to this hearing. Don't know if I believe that 100%, but we're going to find out sooner rather than later. Again, the biggest hole yet poked into the state's case against Alec Murdoch, and we heard a lot more about it today from attorney Dick Harpooling. So, so we've talked a good bit about what we heard today before Judge Clifton Newman, but what did the judge actually decide? What key points did he address in rulings from the bench? Well, Judge Newman did a few things today. Number one, he granted the defense's motion compelling the state to produce all of its communication related to that shirt, related to the report, and related to Bevel, the forensic analysis analyst who's at the heart of this controversy. All of that information will be turned over by the state to the defense Harputlian himself in fact will draft that order so it'll be very thorough and will compel the production of a great deal of information related to that shirt now Judge Newman did not rule on whether or not the shirt could be admitted at the trial because again at this point we don't know whether the state's going to do that so he delayed any discussion of that until that actually became an issue one other thing Newman did that was interesting he ordered that a painting of Alec Murdoch's grandfather Buster Murdoch, one of the solicitors for the 14th Judicial Circuit in the South Carolina Lowcountry, he ordered that that painting be removed from the courtroom here in Collin County for the trial. Again, this was not something that anyone requested from the state side. It was not something that had been raised. This was something the judge brought up on his own, and both the defense and the prosecutors had no objection to it. So that painting will come down for the trial next month. One other issue addressed by Newman today, whether or not Alec Murdoch should be shackled during pretrial hearings and at the upcoming trial. Judge Newman clearly made that decision before this hearing was held as Murdoch entered the court unshackled for the first time. Now, if you've been following the story and seen pictures and videos of Alec Murdoch, you've seen him in prison garb, shackled at the feet and the hands, uh, through the waist. You've seen him in borrowed clothes uh you you've seen him in his own attire but always shackled today was the first time we've seen alec murdoch unshackled he wore a navy blue blazer a blue shirt khaki pants uh, and wore his thin wireframed reading glasses as he reviewed documents and listened to the testimony uh, and arguments that were made today before judge newman so alec murdoch will be unshackled in all future pre-trial hearings it appears and during his trial, again, barring any uh, security issues raised by the state. So that was another uh, decision that Judge Newman made today as we move closer to Alec Murdoch's trial here in Collin County next month. That's a wrap for this week's edition of the Week in Review. I promise we're going to get back to the studio at some point because, folks, it's warm there and it's not particularly warm here in Walterboro, south carolina on this overcast day early december but we're going to be back here a great deal next month here at the Colleton county courthouse in Walterboro, as we cover the apex of the murdoch murders crime and corruption saga the double homicide trial of alec murdoch fitz news has been the tip of this uh, of the spear on this story from the very beginning counting us to continue to bring you the latest on this story and all the breaking palmetto state news that you need to know Thanks for tuning in to the Week in Review, and we will catch you next week.